Good morning again, everyone. We're so glad that you're with us today. Welcome to our Smyrna campus. We're glad you guys are with us today. Anybody connecting with us online, we're happy that you found us as well and connected that way. We are beginning a brand new series today called God Revealed. And in this series, we're going to be looking at different attributes of God. And the reason I wanted to do this series is because I'm convinced that we have a tendency to try to make God into the being that we want him to be instead of recognizing God for who he really is. We have our own ideas or images of God, and, and sometimes it's, it's accurate in some ways, but sometimes we, we miss completely who God really is. There was a little girl in preschool that was frantically drawing a picture, and the teacher came over and asked her, well, what are you drawing? She says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, well, you know, nobody really knows what God looks like, don't you? She said, they will in just a few minutes. <laughs> For a whole generation now, a lot of us, when we hear God, we think of Morgan Freeman, right? He played God in Bruce Almighty, and then he played God again in Evan Almighty, and, and I think he does a really good job with that part. I thought they did a good job portraying him the way they did, uh, but even Morgan Freeman doesn't live up to who God is revealed to be in Scripture. Now, for some that are a little older, I'm not saying who's older here and who's not, or listening online, who's really the older people, but some people might remember George Burns being God. Yeah, and the movies, Oh God, there were a couple of those, and uh, John Denver starred in those, and he, he played God in those movies, and so he played a, a little different twist on what God is like. When we were thinking about a graphic to go with this series, we brought up an iPhone uh, graphic, or it could be any smartphone where you're texting on it. And what, you know, when we're texting, we use a lot of abbreviations, right? A lot of people use abbreviations when they're texting. And one of the most common ones that you see today is OMG, right? What does that stand for? Oh my God. And the reason we thought that would be a good one to use is because of this. The fact that we text that and use it so casually and even say those words so casually tells me we don't really live in the presence of God as he really is. That we would treat him so casually. I'm not saying it's evil with any evil intent that we do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it shows how, how casually we approach God in the name of God and our culture today. And, and I want us to spend some time getting past that. Back to the kind of respect and awe and reverence that we ought to have for God. The passage that James read for us in Isaiah 6 uh, is a passage that, for me, early on as a Christian, reading this passage, uh, I have a tendency... I have a vivid imagination. I have a tendency when I'm reading scripture to put myself in that place that I'm reading about. Whether it's Jesus and, you know, walking with his disciples, I put myself there. Or, or whether it's Isaiah with this vision that he's given, I put myself there. And that's what I want us to try to do today is go back to this place where Isaiah was when he was given this vision. 
And we're going to see three things about God and the nature of God in, in this passage and a few other verses that we're going to look at today to help us rethink who God reveals himself to be. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When you want to know what God is really like, there's only really one source, authoritative source, to reveal God to us. It's Scripture. Scripture is God revealing himself to us. And, and even his spirit works through that scripture, through the word. It says it's the sword of the spirit where God is revealed to us. And it's in the scripture that we read about his son, Jesus. And, and that's part of how God revealed himself to us. So scripture is the authority for who God is. Not our feelings about God. Not our preferences about God. Not our desires on what we want God to be like. Scripture is the authority for who God is and what God is like. And, and when we want to know about God, that's the source we need to go to as the supreme authority on God. And too many of us, even as Christians in our culture today, are letting our emotions tell us what God is like instead of what God actually reveals himself to be like. It's dangerous to depend on your emotions. You know what your emotions are like? They're like waves of the sea, up and down, back and forth. Our emotions can change one moment to the next. You can't rely on your emotions to tell you what God is like. God is revealed in his word. So if you want to know what God is like, you let God tell you what he's like. And he's done that in scripture. And so in God's word, we're going to see several things about God. The first thing I want us to see is God's nature is revealed in this passage in Isaiah 6. Let's go back to verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6. There's this vision that, that Isaiah has. And it's introduced with a, a time stamp. I love the way scripture does that a lot of times uh, so that we could go back and check things out and verify the truth and the accuracy of God's word. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, so we know there was a King Uzziah. We have it recorded in history. We know that we can look and say, all right, this is an accurate view of God's people at that time, that he was king and he did die at that time. So we, we can put a time stamp on this. But it's more than just a time stamp. It's saying this was a critical time in the history of God's people. When their leader died, there's, there's this feeling of a little bit of lostness, and fear about what was going to happen next. Now, King Uzziah had been a pretty good king early on, but later in his reign, he had not done quite as well and, and not honored God as much as he should have. Uh, but still, he, he was their king. And when he died, it threw the kingdom into a little bit of a, uh, a place of chaos on what was going to happen next. But God gives Isaiah this vision... And the whole vision is Isaiah being able to enter into the throne room of God. So Isaiah is immediately reminded who is, always has been, and always will be on the throne. God. God has been on the throne the whole time, even while Uzziah reigned as king. Who was on the throne? God was. 
We get so caught up in the here and now of our culture and our world and who our leaders are and who we're going to vote for or not vote for. And we forget no matter who's the president or who's in Congress or who's ruling in, in England or who's ruling in some other country, who's still on the throne the whole time? God. God is on the throne. He will always be on the throne. You see, that's a reassurance for Isaiah as one of his prophets at the time that he could take back to the people while they were afraid because their king had died. You don't have to worry. God is on the throne. He's still reigning supreme. And so he gives him the vision of God on his throne. And I believe it was to reassure him. But here's what he says about the nature of God on his throne. There are these creatures, remember, that are flying around the throne. And he describes those creatures a little bit. And it's, it's different than anything we have on the earth. It's got six wings and it's flying. And it's, but here's the, the, the main attribute of these creatures that we want to point out today in verse 3. They were calling to one another, holy, holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you can check me out on this. I have checked this and checked this. This is the only attribute of God that's ever spoken this way with three times being repeated. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the original Hebrew, for this to be repeated three times, it was just like we do in English. It's for emphasis. It's for, it's for impact. It's for us to get some idea of being able to grasp just what this means for us. That he is absolutely, totally holy. And that the whole earth reveals his glory and his holiness because it's full of it all around us and the way he created everything and sustains everything. This repetitive holy, holy, holy appears only one other time in scripture and it's in Revelation. And guess what it's a picture of? The throne of God with the creatures around the throne saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we think of God in our culture and in the church today too many times we're not thinking of him in light of his holiness and there's a good reason for that uh, I like in the clip where, where Morgan Freeman playing God says you know he says the light's really bright he says yeah it is for most people most people spend their lives in the dark hiding from God's light you know why because that holiness exposes, more than anything else, our sin. Our sinfulness as a people. And we don't like for that to be exposed. We're a lot more comfortable if it's never brought up, it's never mentioned, it's never talked about. Right? I mean, isn't it awkward to have conversations about our sin? About how flawed we are and messed up we are? Isn't it awkward to have that exposed and revealed but you can't come into the presence of God without your sin. I can't come into the presence of God without my sin being absolutely revealed and exposed in the presence of his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
And we need that reminder in the church today of the holiness of God. We need that reminder of of how we should recognize him as that holy God that he is. Remember when the apostles asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. They had seen Jesus pray. They had heard him pray. They witnessed how he prayed. And they thought, wow, this is, this is different. We need to learn from him how to pray. And, and Jesus gave us what we now call the model prayer. And in Matthew 6 and verse 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. And he started out this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I didn't catch this for a long time. He didn't say hallowed is your name. The word hallowed means that it's to be revered. It's to be honored above all others. It's to be recognized for who he is and the position that he holds and the holiness of his nature. He didn't say hallowed is your name. He said hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. It's a command really, that we as his people are to hallow the name of God on earth the way he is hallowed in heaven. Isaiah gets a vision of how he is hallowed in heaven. All the creatures in heaven bow down and cry out and and worship to him. Holy, holy, holy are you, God. And on earth, he says, I want you, my people, to make sure the name of God is hallowed that way on earth. OMG doesn't do that. The way we casually throw out God's name and use it in vain does not hallow the name of God. We need to get back to hallowing, honoring, revering God for who he is and his holiness. The Hebrew word for God was so hallowed during the time of the Old Testament and the scribes Listen to me. This is, this is how hallowed it was for them. This is how they hallowed the name of God. They would never say the actual Hebrew name of God out loud. They were afraid to speak it that they might mess up somehow and not honor it the way they should. So they wouldn't even say it out loud. We now, uh, sometimes it's been translated traditionally for years as Jehovah. Uh, only now we know a more accurate pronunciation it might be Yahweh. But they didn't say Yahweh out loud. Because it was so hallowed that they knew they didn't even have the ability to live in such a way to be able to speak his name before him. When the scribes were recording, you know, they would copy scripture and copy it and copy it and give out copies. And uh, it was all done by hand and it was double checked. And by lots of other scribes, they were making sure it was accurately transposed. But when they would get to the name Yahweh, before they would even write it out, they would go through a ceremonial cleansing to purify themselves and then immediately go as soon as they were purified before they could mess up again they would go immediately and write that name into what they were inscribing that's how much they hallowed the name of God we don't compare well with that do we in our culture today and how we treat God and his name 
And church, I want us to get back to really making sure we are the people that are in our, our time, in our church family, in our communities. We are the ones making sure the name of God is hallowed today. Because his name represents him. It represents who he is and his holiness. And something we need to know about God is that he hasn't changed. He's still the same holy God, holy, 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 that he's always been. And no matter what, how much the culture changes or how much we want to make him into something different, he doesn't change. The scripture is clear. He's an unchanging God. His nature is unchanging. In Hebrews 6 and verse 17, it says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God doesn't change. It's an unchanging nature of holiness. And no matter how we want to make God okay with our sin, he's never changed from the holy, holy, holy God that he is. And he's never been okay with sin. That doesn't change. No matter how many people in our society want it to be different today. It doesn't change. Because God doesn't change. So the first thing I want us to see is how Isaiah reveals to us again in this passage the nature of God, and that nature is pure holiness. The word holy can be translated a lot of ways, but, but the idea is we don't have any one word in English the way because we've so abused the word holy now. We don't have a word in English that really translates it well anymore, but it means to be absolutely pure, no spot, no blemish, no sin in him at all. That's his holiness. No flaws at all. Now, the reason that's so important is because if we're going to learn who God is and hallow his name on earth, then we've got to revisit this concept of the holiness of God because we've gotten so far away from it in our culture, even in our churches. But we make a mistake sometimes, and one reason a lot of churches have struggled, I think, is because we've made this idea of the holiness of God, we've translated it and lived it out in some of the wrong ways. For example, we've made church buildings like they're holier than other buildings, right? Your kids can run in any building except which building? Church building, right? Because that's God's house, right? But guess what it says about the holiness of God? His glory fills where? The whole earth. Everywhere. So when they run in the yard, whose presence are they running in? A holy God. They're running in his presence. And when they are playing on the playground, they're doing it in the presence of God. Oh, you can't wear that to church. Well, guess what? If it's not appropriate for church, where else is it not appropriate? Anywhere else. Because where is God? Where is he holy? Everywhere. You see, we have to understand. There was a great book that came out years ago called Practicing the Presence of God. And I love that book because it, it carries with it the idea that you don't go in and out of God's presence. 
you're always in God's presence. And if he's a holy God, then he's holy wherever you are. Whatever you're doing, you're still in the presence of a holy God all the time. Why do we think some things are okay as long as we're not doing them at church? Right? That's another bad concept because we are the church, right? So wherever we are, guess where church is? It's there because we're the church. So what we've got to do as a culture and as a church in America today and around the world is start again practicing the presence of a holy God all the time and living like we're in the presence of God all the time. Making choices and decisions about what we're doing based on the fact that we're in the presence of a holy God all the time. We're not going in and out of his presence. It fills the whole earth. You don't ever get away from it. So the holiness needs to be lived out consistently all the time. But here's the second thing I want you to see today. And, and, and another mistake we make is sometimes we misunderstand what that holiness means. And one of the best things God did for us, he did so, he's, he's always done so many great things for us. But one of the most amazing things he did for us is send his son here to reveal himself to us in the flesh. Right? So the second thing I want us to see today is Jesus' example of a holy God. Jesus' example of a holy God. In John 14, verse 8, Jesus is teaching his disciples, trying to get them to understand who he is. And in and, and verse 8 and 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. So Philip is saying, Jesus, reveal the Father to us. Let us know all about him. We want to know him. We want to know what he's like. What did Jesus say? Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He says, you want to know what God the Father is like? Where do you need to look? At Jesus. Look at how he lived, the choices he made, how he treated people. That's the Father being lived out in the flesh in front of us. See, one of the mistakes we've made in the church with holiness is this idea that, that if we're going to be holy, then we separate ourselves physically from those that we consider not to be holy uh, because it, it, would, it would somehow infect us in some way or keep us from being what we are ought, to, ought to be if we have interaction with them, if we, if we participate in life with them, alongside them. And so we tend to, as Christ followers, have very few friends and interactions with people who aren't also Christ followers. But you know what the number one criticism of Jesus was? He eats with who? Sinners. You see, holiness is not what God calls us to do to separate ourselves from everybody else. Holiness is what God calls us to to impact everybody else. To influence everybody else. To reveal him to everybody else as we live out his holiness in front of them and with them and among them. Yeah, he says be separate in the sense of not doing the same sinful things they do. He didn't say be separate in the sense of not being around them. 
That's not what it means. You've heard the phrase maybe be in the world but not of the world, and that's pretty much what this means. You live among people that aren't honoring God, but you honor God in the midst of those people. And His holiness is lived out in your life around those people. In Hebrews 1, we're reminded of this, uh, verse 1. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, listen to this, and the exact representation of His being. So if God is holy and Jesus is the exact representation of His being, what was Jesus? Holy, holy, holy. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Did Jesus interact with those who didn't honor God? Did he love them? Yes. You see, being holy doesn't mean we treat other people disrespectfully if they're not doing what we think they ought to do. It doesn't mean we hate anybody doesn't mean we condemn other people. It means we try to be the presence of God in their presence. We bring the holiness of God into the culture that we live in. We gather as a church, but we go out and take God's teaching and God's, God's instructions and God's example into the world with us when we leave the assembly of the people that follow God. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, it tells us a little more about Jesus. It says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. One of the mistakes we make sometimes as Christ followers is we think because God is so holy and Jesus is so holy, he can't relate to us and what we go through and the struggles that we have. But, But the Hebrew author wants us to understand He came in the flesh for that very reason, so that he could relate to us in every way, because he faced every temptation that we face. But here's the difference. He faced it without committing sin, which means not that we need to to think he can't relate to us. What it means is more than ever before, we need to understand not only can he relate to us, but he can teach us how to have victory over those temptations that we're having. The struggles that we're facing. You see, he can help us with our pursuit of holiness because he knows how to win these battles that we're fighting. He's done it already. He's been through it in the flesh just like us. So even in his holiness, he can relate to us and our struggles and our unholiness. And he wants to help us with that. And here's the thing about Jesus. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says this about him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So has he changed in his holiness? No. So we know God the Father doesn't change. We know God the Son doesn't change either. We don't get to redefine God because our culture wants things to be different. We don't get to redefine what is holy and what is not holy just because our culture wants us to accept and tolerate and support things that God says are not holy. We don't get to change that because he doesn't change. His holiness doesn't change. 
what is holy and what's not holy does not change. We don't get to redefine that. We're not in a position to define that. We don't have the authority to define that. We're not God. He is. Here's the problem. When we start trying to remake God into the image we want him to be, we don't have that God anymore. We have an idol now. We've now made an idol. We've made a God after our own liking, after our own interest, our own selfish desires. We've made a whole new God when we try to redefine who he is and what is holy and what is not holy, what is good and what is not good, what is evil and what is not evil. We've made an idol when we try to remake God into what we want him to be. You see, God is so far above us, we cannot remake him. He made us. We did not make him. We cannot remake him into what we want him to be. So we don't have, we don't have the right to start trying to say, well, my God would do this. Or my God wouldn't allow that. Or my God. You don't get to decide what God would do unless you're going to create your own idol. And make that your God. But that's what we've tried to do in our culture today. Even in the church today. Is remake God into the image that we want God to be in. But God doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have a choice to make. How are we going to respond to that holy God? We can't change him. We have no right, our ability, or power to do that. So how do we respond? That's the last thing today, is our response to that holy God. Well, let's look at Isaiah's response in verse 5. He's there before the throne. He sees these angelic beings crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does he do? He says, Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. His first response is he recognizes his sinfulness and how unworthy he is to be in the presence of God. I'm amazed at how many people want the church to feel privileged that they would come and support and be part of the church. And they want to be catered to. If we want them to be part of the church. You know what the attitude should be? I can't believe God would even allow me to be part of his church. I, I don't deserve to be here. I, I don't, I don't, he doesn't owe me anything. I'm not worthy of one single thing that God does for me ever. And for me to think, God is privileged to have me in his church is the worst of ego we could ever have. Because all of us are sinful in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. All of us. I don't care if you're the pastor. I don't care if you're the elder, the Bible study teacher, the life group leader. None of us deserves to be in the presence of God. None of us. We haven't earned this right. We haven't, we haven't worked our way into this role or position to be part of his family, the church, in any way. We're only here by his grace. 
That's all. Unless a holy God like that extends grace to us, none of us can dwell in his presence. Unless he provides the cleansing for our sin, none of us can be in his presence and stay there. None of us can dwell in the presence of a holy God like that. I want to close with an occasion in Acts chapter 2 where Peter preaches the first gospel sermon that's ever been preached. The gospel, that word gospel means the good news. It's the good news of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and conquering sin for us and rising from the dead, giving us victory over sin and death. That's the gospel. And Peter preaches that message for the very first time it's ever been preached. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And as he's bringing the sermon to a conclusion, in verse 36, he says these words. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You know what they just realized? They were responsible for nailing God to the cross. You know what we need to realize when we come to the presence of God? We are guilty of that too. Our sin put him on that cross. That holy God in whom there was no sin at all, had to take our sin on himself and bleed and die for it on the cross. Don't tell me we get to dictate to him who he's going to be or what he's going to accept or not accept. He is the one who came and paid the price for us. It says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles brothers what shall we do that phrase translated cut to the heart is exactly what Isaiah felt when he was given the vision of the throne of God it means he was convicted of what a sinful person he was he said woe is me I'm a man of unclean lips I live among a people of unclean lips these people heard that this Jesus that they put on the cross was indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And they were convicted of their sinfulness. And it brought them to that most important question. What do we do in the presence of that holy God when we understand the sinfulness of our lives? And Isaiah's vision, you can go back and read the rest. One of the angelic beings there one of the creatures around the throne went to a, a fire there and took a coal from the fire and touched it to Isaiah's lips and purified him and cleansed him. In other words, God said, I will, even though I'm the holy one here, I'll provide the cleansing that you need so that you can be in my presence. And what Peter preached on that day in Acts chapter 2 is... The fulfillment of God's plan to provide cleansing for, for the holy, unholy people that we are before him today in his presence. You see, the only way any one of us can enter into and dwell in the presence of God, the only way any of us can end up in heaven and dwell there with the Father in the place he's prepared is we've re if we have received the cleansing we need for our sins. Here's the thing about holiness. It ceases to be holiness if sin is allowed to be present. God will not be holy 
And his dwelling place will not be a holy dwelling place if he allows sin into that place. So the only people that can dwell in the presence of God in his place, around his throne, are people for whom God has provided the cleansing they need so that they don't bring their sin there. You see, we can't take our sin with us to the throne room of God. We have to be cleansed. We have to be atoned for before we could dwell in his presence and be welcome in his presence. These people in Acts chapter 2 were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sinfulness. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's the cry of every human heart that recognizes both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of their lives. The question is, what can we possibly do about this? The answer is, we can't do anything about it. But God already has provided the way. And so Peter replied to them, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, which means by the authority of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to dwell in the presence of God, you have to have what? Forgiveness of sins. Because we are unholy, and he is holy, holy, holy. And the only means of forgiveness of sin. It's through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. There is no other way. You can't do enough good things. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough work in the church to make up for the stuff you did. It doesn't take sin off your record. The only way sin can be removed is by the power of the blood of Jesus. And he says, here's how you, here's how you contact the blood of Jesus. You repent, which means you're ready to turn from your sin. You confess it. You say, I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry, and I don't want to keep going that way anymore. And then he says, be baptized. Baptism is a beautiful, beautiful way God has given us to participate with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the picture of it. If you read Romans 6, that's what it's all about. It is being buried with Christ into the likeness of his death and being raised with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection to a brand new life that is given to us through what Jesus did on the cross. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, listen to me, the Holy Spirit is God, and God is what? Holy, holy, holy. So in order for us to have the presence of God with us, in us, what has to happen? Our sin has to be atoned for, and the only thing that can do that is the blood of Jesus. You can't have the presence of God in you without your sins being atoned for by the blood of Jesus. But when we're willing to repent, turn from our sin, and, and accept the offer God gives us through Jesus of being baptized into Christ, being washed clean and made new, then he can dwell in us and we can dwell in his presence. I love what he went on to say. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise is here for you today. You can dwell in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, but only because of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, if you would accept that into your life. Maybe there's somebody here today, maybe there's somebody listening today online who needs to take that step. It says, it says here in verse 41 of Acts 2, 
Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread into prayer. See, they devoted themselves after that to living for him, the one who had paid that price for them on the cross. You see, repentance is not just being sorry for your sins. It's turning your life around and living it for him. Maybe there's somebody who needs to take that step today so that you can dwell in the presence of a holy God forever. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, right, in view of the cross, in view of what God did for us there, here's what he says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We made worship about attending a service on Sundays. But scriptural worship is the presenting of your bodies, your whole lives, as a living sacrifice to God. That's what baptism is supposed to be all about. It is, it is where you decide to lay down your life, to be buried with Christ, to rise up, to now start living for him. You live as a living sacrifice for him. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we're so grateful of the reminder of your holiness. But Father, it's hard and it's scary because we know, we really do know deep down in our hearts just how unholy we are. And we don't deserve to be in your presence. We don't deserve to be allowed into your family, the church. We don't deserve to be welcome in your in your life activity of, of the work of your kingdom, none of us is worthy to be used by you. But because you love us so much, you were willing to pay the ultimate price so that even our worst sinfulness in our lives could be washed clean and we could be made new before you. And that even when we stumble and fall today, if we should repent, even after we've been washed clean, your grace is still there. And the power of the blood flows not just to our past, but into our present. And we thank you, Father, that even today we can stand before you and be seen as clean and holy because of the covering of the blood of Jesus. Maybe there's someone today who needs to take that step of coming in repentance because they recognize their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. And today, Father, you provide that for them through your Son. May we see that life transformation take place for them even today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.